I'm Peter Sagel, and I'm 54 years old. This is 25 for 25. I'm Panina Beattie. Peter Sagel is best known for hosting the wildly popular news game show on NPR, Wait, Wait, Don't Tell Me. The officer who pulled the truck over says he was impressed with the driver's temporary fix, which was just a red Gatorade bottle duct taped over the broken taillight, basically <laughs> an electrolyte. An electrolyte. An electrolyte. The man was let off with a warning after agreeing to replace the taillight soon while the marketing department at Gatorade were given a great idea for their new ad campaign, Gatorade, drink and drive. <laughs> but Peter didn't always want to be a game show host. When he was 25, he was living in Los Angeles, had just quit his job, and was pursuing a career as a playwright. Since then, he's written many plays and has gone on to be one of the funniest voices in radio. In our interview, we talked about artistic process, developing your voice, and comparing yourself to your peers. Here's Peter Sagel on 25. So where and when were you when you were 25? Okay, 25. That means uh, 1965, 1985. Uh, it was 1990. Uh, 1990, I was living in L.A. It was actually, if I remember correctly, a pretty big year for me. I had uh, graduated college when I was, what, 22, and moved out to L.A. to seek my fortune. And instead of finding a fortune, uh, I got a job working in a theater, which was really interesting. It's sometimes very frustrating. Um, but it was in 1990, sometime that year, where I made a very momentous decision, which is to quit my job and go be a writer. And, you know, out of the various decisions I've made in my life, some of which you knew were big at the time, many of which you don't, that was probably the biggest one that I knew I was making. And it was a, I was right. It was a very big decision. It led to everything else, including the fact that I'm sitting here talking to you. Mm. Um, so... You were sure that it was the right decision? Well, or? I wasn't sure that it was the right decision. I knew that it was necessary. And what I mean by that was I, I went out to L.A. because I wanted to be a writer. Mm-hmm. Uh, I thought I wanted to write for the film and TV industry. What ended up happening is I ended up wanting to be uh, a writer for the theater. And I kept waiting for someone to give me permission to do it, which, because of the way I was raised, meant somebody, a, a superior person, offering me a job, offering me an opportunity, because I had been raised to believe that good things come in your life when authority figures offer it to you. Uh, Perhaps the paradigmatic example is acceptance into an elite college, right, or um, a good grade, you know. I mean, if you want to sort of summarize the the approach that I have been taught to have to life, it's it's to impress somebody to get a good grade. So I was sort of waiting around to impress somebody so that I could, they, that hypothetical person would let me go do what I wanted to do. And I finally realized that not only would that never happen, but that sitting around and waiting for it to happen was almost a guarantee that it it wouldn't, right? The only way to do it was to actually go do it. So I did. I quit my job and people said, where are you going? I said, I'm just going to go back to my apartment and write. It was terrifying. Um, And it stayed terrifying. I remember uh, very vividly going through this this first, this euphoria, I didn't have this job, I didn't have to do what other people wanted, I could do what I wanted in my time, I was completely free. And then terror when I realized I had to pay my damned bills. And that, you know, I, 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 my entire life 
which seemed long at that point, had brought me to a point where I literally had nothing. I didn't have a job, didn't have a family, didn't have an income, and I had to sort of start from scratch. Well, not really from scratch. I had an education. I had support. I was, you know, I was not, you know, desperate on the streets, but nonetheless, it was a, it was a scary thing. Yeah, so what was your relationship to money? I didn't have a lot of it. I mean, I, I'm always very careful about this. I've learned, I mean, I think I was even careful at the time. But I've learned over the years to, to, to realize how fortunate I was, right? Mm -hmm. So, for example, um, I had been raised by, uh, uh, I used to say middle class, I'll say now affluent father. My father was a college graduate and a professional executive. And we didn't live, live in extraordinary wealth, but we were comfortable. And uh, he was able to pay for my expensive college education because he had planned for it, my father. And that meant that, for example, I had no debt. I wasn't desperate to pay student loans, which I understand is a huge thing. Uh, my job was to basically pay my rent and survive month to month, which was hard enough, but easier than a lot of other people had it. Mm. And of course, you know, it, it's one thing to not have any money in your checking account or your bank account uh, and, and not know how you're going to get it. And it's another thing to do that knowing that, like, the worst-case scenario was that you write to your parents, you call your parents and say, all right, I give up, I'll go to law school, right? So I was never going to starve to death. Uh, I was haunted by other fears, though, mainly fears of failure, which to me I think I would have preferred starving to death. So you, your alternative, uh, at least in your parents' eyes, were eventually you'd kind of give up and then go to law school. Yeah, you, you might understand this being a nice Jewish person yourself, that we were raised with certain expectations. I don't know what it's like, you know, for people literally of the next generation. But f for us, for me growing up, there was, we still were very much in the world of our parents. The world of our parents was one in which the road to success was narrowly defined. Mm. The classic, you become a doctor or you can become a lawyer, right. either. <laughs> Uh, in other words, that whole idea of rising up through a very defined hierarchy, uh, and those, and that was that was success. You know, that really was uh, because their parents, immigrants, poor, working class, non-educated, for them to be a doctor, to be a lawyer, uh, to succeed in society was the highest goal. And so, for someone like me who, you know, had on paper these qualifications to go do that. You know, I had good grades in high school. I got into a very nice college. I got good grades there. I mean, I was on that road. I could have easily gone to law school. I could have eased, well, maybe not medical school. I'm terrible at science. But I could have very easily walked that path. And I chose not to and to pursue the arts, which caused my parents some consternation. But more to the point, it caused me some anxiety. What if I failed? What if I was wrong? What if, because the whole notion that I had this gift or have been given this gift of ad whatever advantage it was and would squander it was terrifying to me. Mm -hmm. You were saying that you quit your job and you had some other jobs. What, what kind of things did you do to make Well, I started a freelance life that really essentially lasted for a decade until I got my current job. Mm -hmm. um, and basically, I, I, I strung together things. I worked as a freelance journalist. I did articles for various magazines. I took... Uh, I took various day jobs for people who needed my help. I did almost, I did anything I could. Um, I applied for fellowships and won some. In fact, that period of that started in 1990 ended in 1992, or rather changed, when I won a fellowship that I accepted and I moved to Minneapolis to pursue a writing career. And that fellowship, that amount of money 
that made me pick up and move halfway across the country to pursue a whole new life was 5,000 whole dollars. And I remember I felt rich. $5,000. Yeah, $5,000 sounds like a pretty big chunk of money to me right I now. I know, but that would be that that was my income for the year. Yeah. Yeah. You know? I mean, I know at the same time you're like, yeah, $5,000, man, that's a lot. Yeah. I know. Anyway. <laughs> um, yeah, that's interesting to think about. I wonder um how, how much do you know how much the, that uh, fellowship is now? That's a good question. I, I, I remember looking it up recently, and they still offer the same fellowship. It's called the Jerome Fellowship. It's mm-hmm. from the Playwright Center in Minneapolis, but I think it's significantly more, mm-hmm. I think. I mean, even not just to keep up with inflation. I think mm-hmm. they sat around. They realized, hey, we're asking people to move to Minneapolis for a year. We should pay them something that at least covers their rent. Yeah. So one of your uh, many artistic endeavors yes uh was playwriting that was my right? primary one after oh, okay. a while yeah okay. that was the th- i mean if you had asked me for most of my life what i was doing what my career was what my calling was i would have said playwright mm-hmm. and so at 25 that was still at the height or? yeah that was it that was i mean that's what i did when i say i quit my job and go home i was going to be a writer and that's what i was going to write i was going to write plays and in mm-hmm. fact i started writing my plays that year my first original play was finished that year my, my second one came a year later that was the one that got me that fellowship and off i went so how did you develop your voice? Um, That's a really interesting question. Um, and it's sort of different from a different question from what we've been discussing so far, which is sort of where I was in life and how we're making my decisions about life. If you want to talk about art, basically the, the shortest answer I can give you is that I, it took me a long time. Uh, like anybody who's trying to do any kind of art, you go through a long apprenticeship which is basically immersing yourself in other people's voices and sometimes trying to imitate them, finding the people you like, finding the people who, who, who excite you. Like, wow, you know, the reason I like theater in my case was because I like the work of this writer or that writer or maybe this artist or oh, that artist. artist. Oh, gosh. Um, uh, going back some time, there, there were writers like uh, you may, some of which you may have heard of, like David Mamet and, and uh, Tony Kushner, some of which you may not have heard of, like Eric Overmeyer or Paula Vogel. Um, I also read, and this is kind of important, I read a lot of really bad plays. That was my job. I read plays for this theater, and so I read endless bad plays. And in many ways, that's kind of just as useful because to emulate genius is a challenge. A slightly easier challenge, avoiding stupidity, right? So I can give you a very specific example. Um... My first play, and this is true of a lot of writers, not just of plays, but a lot of things, was autobiographical. It had a central character who was based on me, and that character went through an event in life that I had actually gone through. While I was working on it, I went and I saw a play, like I often did in a small theater in L.A., and it was, yet again, another first play, very autobiographical, again. Uh, And I noticed how, first of all, passive the central character was. And that makes sense if you think about it. If you're writing something about something that happened to you, you, your character is the person who observes everything, to whom everything happens. It's very rarely, uh, you, you very rarely people think of themselves as the protagonist, as an active person, the other person to whom things are happening. And the other thing about it that really bothered me was that whenever this central autobiographical character ever got into an argument with anybody else, he would win. He was clearly in the right. Right. You know, it's like it was a play. Basically, I mean, the title of the play could be all of those who wronged me and and how I showed them. Right. And I thought that was so obnoxious 
that I, I and just so annoying that I went home and I started to rewrite my play to make the central character based on me, significantly more obnoxious. Mm-hmm. So, and you know, whether or not, whatever that says about how I viewed myself, it made for a better play. It, it made the central character of the play someone who was flawed and therefore had something to do and something, somewhere to go and much more interesting. So that sort of thing. Um, just learning, and you know, uh, here's another classic mistake. Uh, when I was a playwright at the Playwright Center, we used to have um, a, a game where we would be reading or sometimes, God help us, seeing bad plays, and the game was on what page or at what minute does the play actually start, right? Sometimes the play starts on page 10. Sometimes it starts on page 30. Sometimes it doesn't actually start until the beginning of Act 2. And what we meant by that was, you know, plays should be about something serious happening. Something interesting has to happen to grab your attention. And a lot of times people were writing plays in which there was a half an hour or more of just throat clearing, of just people saying, well, here we are, sitting around. Hmm, what an interesting place we are. And then, like, like, finally on page 30, somebody would come through the door and say, oh, my God, you're not going to believe the building's on fire or something and get the play started. Some of the things about that. Um, I learned about the kind of dialogue I liked and the kind of dialogue I didn't like. I learned about um, what it all came down to, though, and I think this is expanding from my specific experience into, I think, a more general experience, is people start making the art ultimately that they want to see. People who make music play make the music that they want to hear. And and people who write plays write plays that they want to go see. And that can only come when you've seen or heard or experienced a lot and you feel what's missing, right? Mm. Um, So uh, my most successful play, for example, meaning that it was produced most widely, was this play called Denial, um, which is about a Holocaust denier. And among the many things I wanted to do and something I had never seen was I wanted to see a play in which somebody does the right thing the noble thing, and instead of getting rewarded for it, gets punished for it. Because it seemed to me, and still does, by the way, that we have this myth that doing the noble thing is easy. Everybody will acclaim you. Everybody will understand how virtuous you are by standing up for the right thing, right? taking the principled stand for defying the mob. And that's, I, I just, it just occurred to me that that was kind of wrong. I wanted to see what happened if somebody like did the, did the difficult thing and found out why it was so difficult, that everybody would hate her. And that's what started the play. So that was kind of one of your principles at the time as well as now? Well, it's, it, it is. I mean, it's something I still think about. I mean, I don't write plays anymore, which makes mm-hmm. me sad sometimes. But, but a lot, what I, when I was writing plays, I was mainly writing, I mean, he, here's another thing I sometimes say. There's a cliche about writing that you write what you know. And that makes sense to a certain degree. You know, I shouldn't be writing plays about, you know, Inuit people or whatever. I mean, I could, I guess. I should be writing plays that, in which I can reflect my knowledge about the world. But at the same time, what really propelled me when I was writing well, anyway, was to write about things I didn't know and wanted to find out about. So that was one thing. What would it be like if this happened? What would it be like if that happened? Another play I wrote was inspired by a, um, a real-life murder case in which a, uh, an academic, a head of a chemistry department at Tufts University, ended up having this affair with this prostitute and killing her. Uh, it was written it was into a you know, true crime story. Mm-hmm. And, and I was really 
puzzled by that because, I mean, yes, murders happen. I've been, I'd seen probably a million murders on TV by the time I was that age. But I, it just struck me like how could somebody who came from my world, an educated, academic, middle-class guy, might even have been Jewish for all I remember, um, how, w- how could someone like that end up killing somebody? How would that happen? I had no idea. So I wrote a play in which it happened. Uh, and, you know, that's what ends up sort of, at, that's what ended up propelling work, my best work, which was kind of curiosity. And you were saying before when you saw the uh, the play that was autobiographical, yeah. you kind of said to yourself, okay, I have to go home and rewrite certain things and edit the characters. Yeah. Was that, um, it sounds really daunting. Oh, it's totally daunting. Yeah. It's ridiculous. And so what would you say, because I've definitely had that experience where I, you know, I have some kind of epiphany and say, wow, I have to edit, like, the yeah. entire thing. Um, and often my inclination is to throw in the towel. Yes. Um, and so, and especially early in your career when you're really not sure if you're supposed to be doing what you're doing, how did you convince yourself that you had to keep going? That's a really good question. Um, first of all, I was lucky. And what I mean by that is that I got just enough encouragement to keep going. Like, for example, that first play mm-hmm. the, has never been produced, never should be produced. It's not very good. But it was given a reading by some friends of mine, and people came to see it. And that was enough to make me think, okay, I wrote a play, and people just said, and watched it. And now maybe I can write a better one. So you need enough encouragement to keep going. But it also, I think, comes from... How best to put this? I, yes, I had written this, and it wasn't any good. And that was depressing, and I knew it wasn't any good. But I knew how to make it better, right? Mm-hmm. And, and that is, at least at the time, was, was compelling enough. I could fix it, you know? And, and knowing that you can fix it, it's, it's almost, it's, almost uh, it's a little bit like the famous cliche about, you know, how you do a fabulous sculpture. You just cut out away everything that isn't the sculpture. But that implies that you can see what's in there when you start, you're like, oh, I got this idea of what's in there. And you just keep going for it, you know? And that's, I think, uh, sort of what kept me going. It was like, yeah, I, 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 I know what I want, and I'm going to keep going until I kind of get it. Again, you know, if I hadn't gotten those, those encouragements, those just enough, you know, wafts of a following breeze, just enough people just pushing me along, say, yeah, that's good, take the next step then I might have given up because at a certain point I would have just, I would have looked at the world and accepted the world's verdict. But, you know, sometimes you just need to, you just need to keep going and you're driven not by ambition, not by confidence, but just sort of a sense that you know what you want and you won't be done until you get it, Mm -hmm. you know? Who were your friends? I was, at that time, I was, it's interesting because I just saw some of them again for the first time in years. I had gotten lucky, and I had fallen in with a group of people in L.A. centered around a woman named Leslie Hope, who wasn't the, is still now an actress um, of, of some professional accomplishment, also a director these days. And she collected people who she liked and wanted to make things with. And I was lucky enough that I was invited into that circle. So Hollywood, L.A., was filled with new theater companies that came and went as people tried to find, make work for themselves and they couldn't get work from TV or film. And this, to a certain extent, was one of them. But it was my social circle for a good three years. And those are the three years in which I 
started to write in which I quit my job. And those are the people who gave me both encouragement and company. Uh, plus, I had you know a couple of still close friends from college. And so that, that helped a lot. Um, we were all trying to do similar stuff. And even though some of us weren't any good, we were all trying at the same time. Mm-hmm. They were sort of, you know, in the same way that comedians talk about, like, the people they hang out with right. at the open mics. You and came you know, up together. Right, you came yeah. up together. And, and, you know, you were all there with each other. You were all at the same level, so there was no sort of condescension or, e- or even worse, admiration. You know, it's important that everybody's kind of be the same so nobody dominates the process. Yeah. We're all trying together. And a, that's sort of what I had. admiration. Yeah, you know, if, and if you drop like a superstar into the middle of that group, the whole dynamic gets thrown off because everybody tries to impress that person. Everybody hopes for that person's favor. Everybody starts emulating that person mm-hmm. because, you know, they're successful. So mm-hmm. I'll do. But fortunately, we, we, we didn't have that. We just had a group of people. Uh, varying levels of professional success, but we all sort of supported each other and helped each other and encouraged mm-hmm. each other. And, and, and making thing, making new things was sort of our currency. Mm-hmm. Great. Um, so those were your friends. And how many of them, have they stayed your friends? Many of them have. I mean, I left L.A. and leaving them behind, which is, I have a bad habit of, like, creating communities and then leaving them for reasons that I will probably, you know, maybe I should be speaking that to a therapist rather than, uh, rather than you. Uh, but I've stayed in touch with many of them. Like I said, I went back to L.A. just recently and, and had dinner with some of them. And it turns out uh, we're all still very fond of each other. It was a really, really wonderful thing. But we all went off to have different adventures. Uh, some of us, uh, you know, quit and did other things. Some of us stayed. So, I mean, one, you know, one guy, for example... Uh, did one project, and that became his his Lord of Life's mission for 15 years. He did a play, and then he started pursuing a movie of that play, and it took him like 15 years to do it, but he did it, and he made that movie. So how, what was that like, meeting up with your friends from when you were around that age? Was there uh, any tension there, or was it surprising to see how everyone had kind of um, gone in their own path? Well, I felt really good about it. Mm-hmm. Uh, I mean, for one thing, we're all over 50, and, and one of the nice things about being over 50, there aren't a lot of them, but one of them is, is that your sense of c- competition falls away because you feel like, well, I don't want to say the race is over, but it kind of is. Your life isn't over. But to a great extent, you know what happened to you, right? At your age, you're like, what's going to happen? It sounds so nice. I know. At my age, I know. Yeah. And uh, jealous. <laughs> I, in a weird way, I, I you should be jealous. Yeah. And well, it's, if, I'm jealous that you if, only if you feel good about. Well, that. yes. And but what's weird is, you know, and I'm lucky and the people I was having dinner with were lucky uh, in that we had all ended up relatively well. Like uh, uh, we had careers. I obviously have a have a career. Um, but at the same time, there wasn't anybody at that table who hadn't gone through some difficulty. Uh, there were a couple of divorces. In fact, one, one friend of mine had, had three, I think. A couple of, you know, uh, you know my, my friend who directed that movie, he spent 15 years, made that movie, and you know what's happened since then? Nothing. So that didn't lead to the next thing, as he hoped it might, as far as I know. Mm-hmm. But he did it. And so the, we were all sitting there, having done what we've done, having arrived at where we've arrived at no longer feeling that anxiety about what's next. And there's a real comfort in that. And, and you're, you're able, it's hard to talk about this with invoking cliches, but you're able to appreciate 
what's important. And it turns out that what's important are friends like that and having those connections and having shared those experiences when we were young and helping each other mm. uh, back when we were there. So we all felt pretty good about it. It was a pretty nice evening. Um, and I guess you mentioned, you know, now seeing your friends from when you were 25, there isn't that element of competition. Yes. And so was there an element of competition? <sighs> there might have been. Um, certainly. But how best to put this? Uh, again, the the analogy is um, maybe a bunch of stand-up comics, and I'll understand this. You're so understanding. So, you, so, ima- so, 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 hypothesize a group of stand-ups, mm-hmm. and you're all aspiring stand-ups. You're all doing different things, and you all love each other. And, and and you would never say that you're competing with each other because you don't want your success to come at the expense of anybody else. If, if somebody said to you. Uh, you get to be a superstar as a stand-up. You'll get, you know, your own Netflix special, whatever the st- whatever the, whatever the prize is. But the price for that is, your friend over here, he has to quit. He loses. You wouldn't take that deal. You you don't want that to happen. So you're not competing in that sense. At least I hope you wouldn't take that deal. I don't know. I don't know. There is an element, though. It's not competition so much as I'm going to beat you. You're going to beat me. As comparison, mm-hmm. as like who's doing better, who's oh my gosh that guy got invited to do a night at this actual comedy club isn't doing open mic he's actually going to advertise I mean I again I'm just sort of hypothesizing where the things are mm-hmm. or this person you know got invited to audition for a TV show or whatever it may be or this person got hired to write for this thing you know mm-hmm. um, and and you're like damn it I I got to catch up I got to mm-hmm. get that job I got to do what's next and so there was back then that sense of who's doing better who am I doing as well should I be doing better I probably should be doing better mm-hmm. oh my gosh he's got that really cool job should I I should probably try to get that cool job or or maybe I should be more like him or oh, I'm doing it all wrong if only you know yeah so that was certainly something that I felt but never and again that that had all faded away because it turns out that if there's any lesson from age it's that you think you're all running the same race back then you're not you're running your own and you might be on a parallel track that seems the same as somebody else's, but it's not. And you just have to do your own thing you know, follow your own path as best you can, for better or for ill. Because if you try to live somebody else's life, that's not going to work. Mm-hmm. You know, I had a friend who, you know, who was doing this kind of stuff. And if, I had, and, 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 and if he had gotten successful doing that kind of stuff, if I had said, well, I should do that kind of stuff, it wouldn't have worked because that's his. It's not mine. I'm not good at that. I'm not. That's not where my interest is. So, right. you pursue your own path and see what happens. Right. That's the importance of the creative process. Right. You stop replicating other people's. Yeah. Works. Like one of my friends became a, a very successful writer for TV, writing children's shows. She's very good at it. She's made mm-hmm. a whole career out of it. Uh, it's not something I ever wanted to do. And if I tried to do it. You know, one of the best examples I ever, uh, the best illustrations of this I ever got was, uh, it was when I was, I moved to New York and I was, and, and I was eager to get paying work and maybe in television. And somebody called me up and said, there's a, there's a soap opera producer who's read your plays and thinks you're great and wants to see if you want to be a job writing for a soap opera. And, and I was like, well, that's a professional writing job. That sounds great. That sounds like a step up the ladder. I'll be interested in that. And I met with her, and she said, you know, you're a wonderful writer, but I, this is what I want you to do. I want you to sit down, and I want you to walk, watch our soap opera for a week. It was one life to live. I never watched a soap opera. I said, that's fine. We have a lot of people who don't watch it. But 
But I want you to remember one thing. If you're going to do this, you have to love it. You can't condescend to it. It has to be something that you're really interested in, that you really think is great, and you want to make it because you think it's great. And I watched the show for a week, and I, it was much better than I thought it would be. It was much more intelligent and interesting and complex than I, than I just thought it would be. People saying, oh, how could you sleep with my sister? No, it was much more interesting than that. But I realized she was right. I didn't love it, and therefore I shouldn't do it. And so I called her up, and I, you know, I said, thank you, but no thank you. And she totally understood, and that was great. And I've never regretted that decision for a minute because that's... I couldn't have done it because it wasn't my thing. It wasn't something I was interested in doing. The people who write soap operas should really love soap operas. So I want to ask, how did you make your transition towards radio? And um, how did you mitigate the kind of leaving, almost leaving behind playwriting? Well, you know the story. I don't need to, I don't, th I think you know the story, which basically I fell into this by accident, right? That somebody I knew knew somebody who was helping to put together the first iteration of Wait, Wait, Don't Tell Me, mm -hmm. got in touch with me, said, hey, would you be interested in doing this? They're looking mm -hmm. for funny people who read a lot of newspapers. The guy thought I'd be good at it. Uh, I, I said, sure. Mm -hmm. uh, auditioned, became a panelist, and then was offered the role of host 21 years ago. Mm -hmm. Not something that I expected to be doing. I, if you had said to me, you know, a day before I got the phone call, do you think you'd end up doing radio for a career? I would have said, what are you talking about? Mm -hmm. But it turns out that uh, that I was, uh, it turned out to be, obviously, um, uh, uh, I think, a wise move for me because it turns out that it, it played to strengths that I had been developing without knowing I was developing them, uh, obviously. Uh, one of them was conversation. One of them was being, you know, just one of them was being quick on my feet. One of them was basically, one thing I hadn't realized was uh, I had been listening to public radio Every day, I mean, literally turning it on the moment I woke up and sometimes turning it off the moment right before I went to bed, every day for a decade. So it turns out I had kind of absorbed at least enough of what good radio should be like that when the time came for me to look at a microphone and start producing it, I wasn't completely far afield, mm -hmm. you know? Yeah. Uh, I was like somebody who was making his first movie after a lifetime of watching them. And I knew what a movie was supposed to look like, even if I didn't quite know how to make it. Mm -hmm. So that helped a lot, too. Uh, and it also, you know, one of the things that, um, and I've thought about this, why I took to it, why it ended up being my career, was partially that kind of, what's the word, um, you know, I've been talking about this this habit of mine of, like, creating a community and then walking away. It's because I'm constantly sort of thinking about, like, what's next, you know. It's why, for example, I could never be a novelist because novel novelists have to spend too long working on one thing, and I would get bored and move on. Radio show you get to do once a week, right? Mm. And I remember very vividly uh, talking to my agent at the time. He was my playwriting agent after I had gotten, you know, have gotten on the panel of this new radio show and telling him how much I loved it because when you write a play, it takes you however many, many months, if not a year, to write a play and then you wait for people to read it and then you wait for those people to read who have read it to make a decision about it and then maybe if you're lucky, they'll schedule it for a play reading workshop in six months. So you wait for that and then if that goes well, you wait. So in other words, you wait a lot. Um, I was just talking to somebody who was involved with uh, the musical Hadestown. Mm -hmm. That 
the woman who wrote that musical has been working on it for 15 years because that's how long it takes sometimes. In contrast, the radio show happened. We did it. And if it sucked, we did a better, we hope, to do a better one next week. Mm -hmm. And I just kind of loved that. That ended up, and I remember telling, this is great. You know, you don't have to sit around and wait. You just get to do it. Mm -hmm. And it turns out that's something I, I apparently really needed to do. Mm -hmm. I really, I, I just wanted to do something, do it, see how it worked, and then try it again next week. So the the old you, the, the playwright in you, was willing to go along with that? Well, yeah, obviously. Right. I well, mean, I mean, I've given up a lot, but I got a lot. Right. Uh, one of the things I gave up was the chance, to, you know, to craft something particular and specific and unique mm -hmm. uh, that was just mine, mm -hmm. you know. Uh, and that was also something I had to learn how to do. I had to learn how to collaborate because I had basically decided that I wasn't a very good collaborator and needed to... Um, and needed to uh, just do something that I could just do in my own. One of the nice things about being a playwright is you are, unlike, say, film, or I guess even TV, well, maybe less so TV now, but certainly unlike film, you are God if you're a playwright. Your word goes. You're at the top of, the, of that creative food chain. And I thought that was good because I wasn't good at listening to other people. I wanted to do what I wanted to do. Mm -hmm. um, I say that in some sorrow as much as pride. I was like, <laughs> yeah, I wish, I wish I was better at it. Uh, but... Have, doing this radio show, man, I had to learn to collaborate because uh, on one level, I wasn't the person in charge. I wasn't, you know, the producer who decided in the end what was going to go out in the air. But also, I couldn't do it by myself. I had to figure out how to do it, um, you know, in collaboration with other people. I couldn't be, I, I couldn't just do what I wanted. And that was something I needed to learn. 25-year-old Peter Sagal looks at 54-year-old Peter Sagal, 54, mm -hmm. right? Yes. What what does he say? What does he think? That's a good question. I mean, there are certain things that I'd be, um, I think, it's hard to say. You know, it's, what's really funny is I think a lot about what I would say, what I, current day, Peter Sagal, 54 years old, would say to 25-year-old me. That was the next question. Yeah, okay. I, well, let me answer that well, first. answer that, yeah. So I've already hinted at some of them. I'd say relax. I'd say stop worrying about your career, stop worrying about your advancement and worry about, and think, not even worry, think about where you are now. Enjoy time. You have much more time than you think. I would also tell him at 25 that the things that you are worrying about are not the things that are going to matter, right? Mm -hmm. That you think it's so important that whether you win this or get that, or it's so important, none of those things matter. What I would tell myself about dating is... Uh, briefly put, nobody you meet is going to save your life. Nobody you meet is going to be the secret to your happiness. You should not be dating people as if you are giving them a job interview for your potential life partner. You should realize that the people you meet socially, romantically, are just like you. Uh, that they're looking for the same thing that you are and that they don't have to be everything that you've ever wanted for them to be worth spending time with. And that expectation of what it has to be in order to be worth your time is flawed and wrong. I would also say some things to him about <laughs> uh, self-worth, about valuing yourself first, and about... Uh, while not being arrogant about it, uh, expecting that 
somebody expecting that the very least that you deserved, I would say to him, is somebody who likes you the way you are rather than someone who demands that you change yourself mm -hmm. or makes you feel that you must. Um, and I would also tell that person to relax. I would also tell him, oh, I have a lot of things I would tell him about this. <laughs> I would tell him that lust is not the same thing as love, mm -hmm. although sometimes it presents, and that everything you've, or I would say 99% of what you've read and seen about romantic relationships in film, TV, and movies is absolute bullshit. Yeah. Yes. You were saying about the things that are important to you when you're younger but really don't matter in the grand scheme of things. It's it's so hard to to know at the moment until later and you think oh wow that really that really wasn't important that really w didn't matter but it's true in fact i was talking to somebody uh, interestingly my wife who's younger than i am has a friend who's the same age as her went to college mm -hmm. with her. in fact uh, no they weren't boyfriend and girlfriend that was somebody else um but he married an older woman mm -hmm. and there was a, a moment when she and i the wife and me were talking while the other two were in the bathroom mm -hmm. or whatever and and she was telling me about how she dated this guy. She had a date with this guy when she was twenty, when he was twenty-five, and he was she was almost forty. Mm -hmm. And is that right? No, that's not exactly right. Uh, but it's she was significantly older than he was twenty-five. Mm -hmm. And she was like, "Yeah, I thought it'd be a fun weekend." And now look. <laughs> and I said, "How did you, I'm, I'm impressed because uh, during my single years between my two marriages, I dated a twenty-five-year-old, and she was a totally lovely person." And I don't regret it for a second. I hope she doesn't either. But it was really hard to listen to her talk about her life because she had 25-year-old problems, mm -hmm. which were very real and important to her. But all I could think was, honey, none of these are going to matter. It doesn't matter. Like, the way this guy treats you at work doesn't matter. Like, this whole thing with your father that you're worried about doesn't matter. It's all, it's, I, I can tell you that I worried about those things, and it ended up not mattering. Mm -hmm. But you can't say that. Mm -hmm. You can't say to somebody... These things that occupy your time that you care deeply about that hurt your feelings that right. really you can, none of it matters. No. You're, you're being silly. Right. So you know it's uh, but anyway she imagined she put up with it. Um, so but to finish the point, you asked me if my, if my 24 year old self would see me, what would he think? Yeah. Yeah. And that that's an interesting question because basically here's the short version. He wouldn't be satisfied with where I am right now. But he should be. And the fact that he should be encapsulates everything that was wrong with me when I was 25 and that I would love to tell him if I were able to talk to him. So mm -hmm. our conversation would be like he'd look at me and say, is that it? Where's your Pulitzer? Where's your Oscar? Why haven't you done this? Why haven't you done that? And I would be saying to him, no, you don't understand. Mm -hmm. None of those things actually mattered. Mm -hmm. What ended up actually mattering were these things. What kind of music were you listening to at 25? Uh, uh, that was a time in my life when I was mainly obsessed with Elvis Costello because Elvis Costello represented or expressed a kind of... Elvis Costello was in many ways the quintessential angry young man. But he, his anger, his anger, it wasn't like, you know, rage against the machine. Or it, it was anger about his own failure to figure out what the hell was going on. Um, there's, a, there's a famous song from his first record, uh, Romeo's... Uh, I forget what it's called. Um, oh, the mystery dance, uh, where he basically is talking about love or sex or both, and he says, I, I, I don't know how to do it, is the line. And I'm like, yeah. And so the idea of, like, he represented this idea of, like, somebody going through this life and trying to make these questions 
and it was interesting because he's exactly 10 years older than I am. So he's 65 now, 64 now, rather. And so when I got to a place in my life, it was like Elvis had been there before and had sort of talked about it or written about it in a way that I found compelling uh, and, and sort of celebratory. He made it into like rock and roll, which I thought was, you know, better than what I was doing it, which was making it into sitting around. Uh, but, you know, what's interesting also is that the, the things that the, the aesthetic experiences I had were mostly, mostly in the theater. Like it was around 1990, if not exactly then, that I saw the very first production of Angels in America, right? Mm -hmm. uh, in a small theater. No one had seen it before, pretty much. Cool. And I, you know. That's a two-parter, right? It's a two-parter, yeah. but he hadn't finished the second one. He only wrote okay. the first part, Millennium Approaches. And, and to see that and to see what was possible in the theater and to see what could be done um, by someone who was at least generically like me, a smart Jewish guy, uh, Tony Kushner. Uh, mm -hmm. although fabulously gay and much smarter than I'll ever be, mm -hmm. uh, was really inspiring and interesting mm -hmm. and, and made me think like there was some hope and there was some possibility in this crazy thing that I was attempting to do. Although I've never come close to what he did, it was still encouraging. Mm -hmm. Great. Peter Sagal, thank you very much. My pleasure, and I promise, one of the things I've learned in my years is to learn how to say your name correctly, Miss BD. Very nice. Thank you. That's Honestly, that's your greatest uh, that's, achievement. That's, you know, you get older, you learn. He's ready to kill. He jumped out the window because he couldn't sit still. TV was waiting with a safety net. said, don't bury me because I'm not dead yet. Why don't you tell me about the misery dance? I want to know about the misery dance. Why don't you show me because I tried and I tried and I still just about I can't do it anymore and I'm not satisfied. Thanks for listening to the first episode of 25 for 25. Our theme music was written and performed by Tom McCauley and Brandon Stradling with help from Little Machine. Our logo was designed by Woozy Kurtz. I'm your host, Panina Beattie. Middle of the night, trying to discover my left foot from my right. You can see those pictures in any magazine. But what's the use of looking when you don't know what they mean? Why don't you tell me about the mystery dance? I wanna know about the mystery dance. Why don't you show me? Cause I tried and I tried and I'm still just a fight. I can't do it anymore and I'm not satisfied. I can't do it anymore and I'm not satisfied. I can't do it anymore and I'm not satisfied. I can't do it anymore and I'm not